Alright, ready? Ready. Okay. Hola, como estas? Welcome to another episode of Tequila High Club. Today, we're going to hear about the story that made one of my favorite tequilas, even though I haven't been able to drink it for a very long time, extra, extra famous. And it wasn't something that was clear cut, but the story and how they turned a tequila into a $100 million sale for a majority share is fucking fantastic. So before that though, we also need to get involved with our special guest who's going to have an exceptional story. My very good friend who's a very big travel influencer and she does a bunch of other cool things as well. We're going to learn about that. Alex, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here. Yeah. What's, um, what's your view on tequila? Do you like it? I know the difference between good tequila and bad tequila, but I can say I've like really only been mostly exposed to the bad kind. Okay. I'm like your standard, you know, I've, I've had good tequilas, but mostly I have a trauma response with tequila. You had too many shots. Mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy it. But I have some family that lived in Mexico for like 15 years and I went to visit them and I remember my cousin opened up. He asked if I liked tequila and I said, absolutely not. And he opened up this wooden bar cabinet and it was filled with like hand-carved wooden bottles and hand-painted ceramic bottles of tequila and it was my first exposure to the quality tequila Mm. and I was able to sip it and really enjoy it it was like 10 years ago and it's been about 10 years since I've had good tequila that's that's insane that's (laughs) a long time that's a lot of shots at at the clubs it's really yeah terrible I always regret it (laughs) well today the good news is that we do have a really really good tequila this tequila is the avion it's the silver so a little education before we get into what silver actually is it means it's not aged so every time you see a tequila that is brown it's because it's sat in barrels for two to six months so it's been able to age and then that's the reason why you get a lot more spicy and sweetness out of it however the avion silver has got a ton of awards in 2022 and 2023 as the International Best Spirit Awards. So you are definitely going to taste some great tequila today. So before we get into the actual story that I really am excited to talk about, let's let's have a smell of this and see uh, see what aromas you are you are testing out now. Mm. Straight off the bat, what do you, what was the smell? Orange. Yep. <laughs> Well done. It's citrus. Orange. Does it? Can you? Does it smell smooth to you? Like it's not a pungent smell, right? No, it's nice. <laughs> Almost smells like smelling a cocktail. Exactly. Yeah. So the aromas that they've got in here: um, citrus, yes, correct, the orange, and then they've also got grapefruit plus vanilla. So that's kind of mm. like. That vanilla is kind of like that nice smoothness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I can smell it. As soon as you tell me, I'm like, I knew that. I was going to yeah. say vanilla. Last episode, there was a, there was a touch of, um, of grass in there, of, of like, like wheat grass or something. And, um, and when you start smelling it over and over and over, you're like, oh, I can actually mm-hmm. smell it now. So Thanks for giving me the vanilla one instead of the wheat grass. You're welcome. Yeah. I told you I'd look after you. <laughs> okay, let's now taste and, and tell me what you're, what you're tasting first off. Are the t- tastes supposed to be different than the smells? No, no. 
a little bit there's a little bit of same a little some similarities yeah but this the this one has for a blanco which is also means silver in my mouth it feels like there's a lot going on like i feel like there's a lot of different taste buds like being hit on it There's something like sour in it. Have you ever had cream delay? Creme delay? Cream delay. No. Yeah. Like an Aussie thing. No, it's not. It's like a dessert. And but yeah, you haven't had it. It's like a it's like a kind of sweety, but it has kind of like a sour a bit of a mm. sour taste to it. That's that. But then you've got um pineapple in this. Then you've got brown sugar. And then At the end, you've got like a, um, it's still nice and smooth, but you're getting like a pepper, kind of a bit of a pepper taste to it. Tiny, it's a tad little bit spicy, which Blanco's aren't usually spicy at all, but. Hmm. And then it's got agave nectar, which is um, kind of like, again, there's a smooth sweetness to it. Yeah, I can definitely t- taste the spice, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have registered as spice unless you had told me. Again, like people sometimes think, oh, is it just a placebo? Because I'm telling <laughs> you. You could be making anything up. It could be yeah. like, yeah. cement. Yes, I can taste it. The aromas <laughs> the of limestone. asphalt. Yeah. Mm. So, um, really nice though. It is really nice, right? So, this, the, I want to get into the story of this before we have a shot. Um, so, Avion was, uh, was created by uh, Kent Austin. He was one of the founders and he's a chairman. And the story we really want to talk about Avion is. Uh, their tagline overall now is it's different up here. So they want to create an experience with everything, right? Which is kind of like their soul bounding way of sending their message out. But one of the coolest things about Avion is uh, Ken is best mates with the, do you remember the show uh, Entourage? Yeah. So he's good mates with the um, writers and the founders of Entourage. And they're having a coffee one day and they were talking about how you know, remember how Turtle had the um, had the car wash business. I am not. I know what Entourage is, but okay, I'm not going to reference it. I'm a huge I'm a huge Entourage lover, so I, I love the show. I love the whole cast. I've watched on reruns. I think I'm like the exception to the rule. Most people haven't seen it. We so. can watch it. I'll show you. I'll, okay. I'll, yeah, we'll watch it one season. We'll repeat the tequila show, yeah. but with Entourage. Okay. Exactly. Uh, so there was a season where it was the final season. And Turtle, who's one of the main characters, he was always struggling to get ahead and, and get shit done and make something of himself, right? Um, and then he got this car wash and he's, this um, private car wash service, um, limousine, limousine service. And then he was trying to make himself, uh, yeah, basically into an entrepreneur. And the writers, when they sat down with Ken and having a coffee, he's like, how's the show going? He's like, well, I want something more for Turtle. I want something. I want Turtle to go out on a bang. I want this season and the final of the show for him to go out that he's made it. But I just don't know something. I'm not clued up. I'm not 100% like certain that a limousine business or a chauffeur business is like his claim to fame. But I'm looking for something. And Ken goes, what about Avion? Oh, what about my tequila? And he goes, oh, what's your, what's, what's your tequila called again? He's like, Avion. He goes, is it good? And Ken claims he's like it's the best tequila that like in the world that ever tastes, right? So they end up changing and rewriting the script for Turtle and add in Avion. So the last season, mm. Turtle's going through and he finds this Avion. He meets this girl who actually he fired that worked for him. They end up dating, hooking up, 
and then she introduces him to their family, right? Who owns Avignon, oh. but they haven't distributed into America. So the episode in the season goes on where Turtle grinds hard and he gets Avion everywhere because his best mate is the superstar, like the actor of um, the whole season, right? Vince, um, who's played by Adrian Grenner. And so he goes through this whole season. He fucking nails it. He gets it into huge like celebrities' hands. It's going into bottle shops. It's going out the door, right? And then towards the end... He ends up sitting down with the owner and then the owner gives him a gold watch, right? Because originally he introduced Mark Cuban to the owner and the owner didn't want anything about it. But then all the shares that Turtle had, Mark Cuban ended up doing a deal with Avion and ended up taking a pub, going to take a public. But when Turtle um, got given the Rolex, which means, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, that's it, we're going to take over from here. Um, he ended up selling all his shares. But then Adrian Grenner, Vince, ended up buying the shares behind his back, back off Mark Cuban. And then it went public. And then his shares were then going to be worth something like a few million dollars. And then so at the end of the season, Adrian goes and gives the, um, the, uh, his shares back to him, just minus what he purchased them for. Wow. Right? So that's the story. I wasn't sure if that was going to end in like the craziest drama yeah. to ever be written in a TV script, but... So the thing is, right, Ken now thinks, okay, we've got this on the first episode. Avion is going to go gangbusters, right? Mm -hmm. First episode goes up, Avion's featured, nothing happens. And so him, his president, they're like going through their mind. They're like, how is this possible? We've got this on the number one TV show in America and no one is buying. There's nothing happened with sales. And everyone who was watching it thought Avion was fake. Sure, yeah. So no one like, no one... No one's Googling the fake products and TV shows. Now, before that happened, uh, Ken was busting his ass to try and get distribution, trying to get it out there, and no one was paying him any attention. He called, he emailed all the distributors, no one was giving him funds or anything like that, right? Then he looks at and understands and hears this story where this kid found Avion in a bottle store, a little boutique bottle store that was selling Avion. And then he goes into a party and goes, guys, look what I found, Avion. And everyone thought it was a fake bottle and like, no, it's the real deal. And they drank it. And then this chitter chatter started going on. And so when he heard about that, he realized that, okay, we need to change our entire campaign. So he changed it from what it was then to, yes, it's real, and blasted that everywhere. And then um, that happened. And then in three months, sales started going up and fucking killing it. And then all these people that originally said no to him started knocking on his door. So it was this really cool, like realistic moment but the one number one people that he really wanted was called um, Pernard Ricard, which was uh, the biggest distributor, one of the biggest distributors in USA. They're like an international company. And he, very creative guy, he sends the CEO a blank email, blank email on a Friday, right? Because he looked at their portfolio and realized that they, they didn't have a tequila. They didn't have a good, strong tequila in their portfolio. So now they have a gap. Sends him a blank email. Monday gets an email back from him. Meets him two days later. 
A day later, he gets an okay from that Paris office that they can put in um, for a deal. Why did he respond to a blank email? Because he must have seen the Twitter channel Avion and seen a blank uh, email. How interesting is that? Is that, hey, like who would have ever thought just to send a blank email to the top person on one of the biggest like companies in the world? It's the weirdest like corporate flex I've ever heard of. I know, right? It worked. Crazy. So they ended up striking a deal and then three years later, $100 million was then bought for majority share into Avion. And then Ken and that still run the company. And then, yeah, so that's like their claim to fame. And that's the story on how Avion is basically everywhere around the world. Wow. Mm. It's real. Cool, I didn't right? even know it was ever fake. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Okay. So, <laughs> so after all that, let's now take a shot and let's taste this in a little bit more fullness. I know you're a little under the weather, so there... I gave you a little shot. A tequila a day. How'd you, how'd you go? We're being recorded, so I'm going to take it like a champ. <laughs> you can take it however you want. If it... <laughs> but this is the thing. I like feedback, right? Mm-hmm. If you feel like, if like, how did that taste? Like take, because when you're sipping it, it's one thing, but if you're taking a proper shot back, how did that feel? Yeah. I mean, better than any other shot I would order at a bar. Yeah. This Even is, of my preferred liquor. This is the problem, right? This is one of the reasons why I've made this show is that everyone gets poured shit tequila down their throats. And this is really right. For example, my dad. My dad, when he was younger, my dad was just over here, right? And so I've got all this tequila for the show. And then um, I give him like some of the best tequila that there is, right? And he drinks it and he's like, ugh. I just can't. And this stuff is like wicked, yeah. like really good. And it's because he had a really bad experience on some shitty tequila back in the day. Mm. And all through the world, everyone takes it. It's sh- so true. You can even just say tequila. Like I was out with my girlfriends recently and they offered us shots and offered a tequila shot. And just the thought of it gave me like a reflex. Mm-hmm. It's just an association we all have with tequila. And I have to say... Taking it with an orange is so much nicer. So much. Why better. do we what the lemon and salt? Ah. Hey, someone with uh, yeah. Um, I can't, how do I say this? Why do I get cancelled? Someone not smart made up the lemon idea, <laughs> which, which I need to educate on why where that came from because orange pears because it's a citrus and you always taste the citrus feel from the agave, and that just makes more sense to take it down with an orange. And it's a nice flavor. Like no one really normally wants to eat a wedge of lemon. Exactly. And have a bunch of salt in their mouth. And we've all associated tequila with 100% the whole lemon and the salt. Why? Why? Even just the thought of that. But this was nice. Mm. I would totally. So out of 10, what would you rate this? Mm. I think I'm not the best benchmark for like a a scale test because I have terrible tequila that I would avoid with my life and then I had that nice tequila 10 years ago I give it like okay so if the shit tequila that you had was zero and then the good tequila you had was 10, 10. where would you be maybe an eight eight yeah well done nice. I think I need to try some more and have like a better you know data sample mm-hmm. I'm willing to pour myself into the research well this is the reason why I have three <laughs> types of drinks right so the first one is the neat so we can really get to understand the flavor. 
Next one is a shot because there's a little bit more alcohol. So we take that back. Was it easier to go down? And then the next thing, which is my favorite thing, is tequila and orange juice, which is my favorite. Cheers. Cheers. Is it not frowned upon to put orange juice in some nice tequila? I don't really care. All right. Because it's... Because uh, we paid our dues? Yeah. Yep. There's different ways to drink tequila and uh, no one drinks orange juice with tequila. For example, one of the boys that was over, so we filmed a podcast here, filmed a talk show, had a bunch of crew come over after, and then I was introducing everyone to orange and tequila. And one of the boys was like, I can't drink tequila. And I was like, taste this. And then he messages me a week later. He's like, bro, you've changed my life. He's like, I don't want to drink anything else but tequila and I can only Aww. drink it with orange juice. And I'm like, sweet. There's another one that's been converted. Wow. So it's kind of like I'm all about like, like a, a priest. And I'm building a cult. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Tequila. I'm on board. I'm here. I'm with it. I should change club to cult. Tequila high cult. Tequila high cult. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm with it. So now that we've learned about the story of Avion, we've tasted some good tequila. Let's talk about the story of Alex. So where are you from? And... I know that you travel the world now and you're doing a lot of cool things. You're involved with a lot of different projects, but where did you start off with and and how did you get to where you are now? I started off in Phoenix, Arizona, and I started off hating Phoenix, Arizona since I can remember. Um, I think I was eight years old when I somehow learned about like the Peace Corps and I told my parents, as soon as I can, I'm leaving America, I'm going to go live in East Africa, that's where I wanted to live. Uh, so I always knew I wanted to get out. Um, I left the I left Arizona when I was 17 and went to school on the East Coast and spent some time in New Jersey. And then I went to graduate school. What was um, before you get into that? What was your parents' reaction when you when you said that? Where they were? Very oh, they knew there was no way yeah. that they thought I was going to stay in Arizona. I think my my parents hoped they like took me on tours of the Arizona State Universities, but. I wanted to go to a small school. And... But what about the peace thing, though? Oh, the Peace Corps. Yeah. Well, what, were they, what were their reactions about? Oh, that? I think they loved the idea of that. I think they supported it. They were always supportive of what I wanted to do, and they thought it was beautiful and wonderful. I think they just also simultaneously wished that what I wanted to do brought them closer to home. Um, but I think when I ended up in D.C., that's where I ended up for about eight years before I came to Bali, where I live now. Uh, I think that that was sort of a relief for them, thinking that at least I wasn't going to go too, too far <laughs> from home. And when I made the move to D.C., it was I was on a really different path in life. I had wanted to join the Peace Corps and live in Africa, and I learned French to be able to do that. And And then I shifted gears, and I started going through the motions of life and doing what I know a lot of us have done, checking off all the boxes of the things that you're supposed to do mm-hmm. to be happy and fulfilled and successful. And yeah, that led me to DC at a big law firm. And it was nothing like what I dreamt I would do when I was eight years old. So you, you studied, you went to college and you started, studied law, right? I studied psychology, uh-huh. behavioral science in university. And then in the States, you have to go back for graduate school. So I went back to school for three years to get my law degree. <laughs> and then went to DC and practiced law where I studied in DC and then worked at a big law firm there for about two years. So uh, working in a, a big law firm, you would have seen some shit that's pretty high-end corporate, especially in a legal firm. Is it anything like suits? Uh, okay. Honestly, yes. Um, I would say a lot of the action is less exciting 
a lot of the mundane is very spot on. <laughs> and a lot of the, just I could get in trouble for saying this, but a lot of the toxic culture of the big law firms, um, the drama, the the things that you see in suits that add all the drama to the show that is more or less real. Would you mean like as in the drama, as in there's a lot of like ladder climbing, that type of stuff or? Relational drama, substance drama, mm. ladder climbing drama, people that are in positions of power and know it mm -hmm. and use that in ways that I personally didn't align with. Um, yeah, it can create a very, you know, sexy environment for a series on Netflix. Mm -hmm. For me, working in it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I hated it. Wow. Yeah. So then what, what made you flip the switch? Yeah. So I, and to be fair, some of the things that I was working on were super interesting. The cases were interesting, really high profile cases, the, you know, conflicts and the issues were interesting but law school was a lot more interesting than practicing law in my opinion Neat. um when you're in it it was kind of just a lot of emails mm. just a, just a lot of degree to get email yeah, I get certified it. um so yeah i did that for a couple of years and right before law school was sort of this breaking point for me or right after law school was sort of a breaking point for me i remember it was the week of graduation and i was sitting at a desk in the law review which is a new law publication I was sitting at the desk in the offices because I was an editor and I remember everyone was taking shots in the next room like to celebrate graduation and I was using the printer in the office to print out my divorce papers and that was where I signed those papers to finalize my divorce and I remember sitting at the table kind of crying over my divorce papers and my friends are taking shots and I was like what have what am I doing like what have I done in my 20s and who am I? Wait, how old were you then? I was 23. So how long were you married for? I must have been 24. I was married for three years. I was 24. Why? So, okay, you're, cause you, that's a very young age. Yeah. A very young age. Was that, mm. why? <laughs> why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but I definitely like looking back, even when I say I was eight years old and I wanted to join the Peace Corps and I wanted to move, I think there was just some part of me that was racing through life for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wanted to be taken seriously or I had big dreams or ambitions and I just wanted to get there without having to go through the process of learning of who I was really. Mm -hmm. And I think I just, I wanted to do things more quickly. Like I raced through university. I graduated when I was like 20. And then got married when I was 21. I was also really immersed in the church at that time in my life. And that was what I thought I was supposed to do to have impact and be. So was this like your, your ex-husband, uh, this was like a religion, more like a religion marriage? No, no, it was, it was the best decision I knew to make with the information I had at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, obviously I would make different decisions now, but I thought I was really doing the right thing. I thought it was the best way to, you know, live out my purpose or serve the world or serve God or mm -hmm. whatever. And we had enough conversations that things seemed really aligned. And then you get into a relationship because we're children <laughs> and realize that none of us really know who we are. And it was totally misaligned and what we agreed on and how we saw eye to eye before that marriage, before stepping into that marriage, as soon as we walked into it, things were upended. 
and the treatment of you know, how I expected to be treated as a partner, as a wife was completely different than what I experienced in reality. So yeah. And can it, can I go into a little bit more about for that? Sure. Like, what do you mean by treating? Like, like what was your, what did you think like you were going to be treated and then how were you actually treated? Mm-hmm. Because that, I mean, obviously that's, I want to ask that, that question, but then I want also to understand when was it that you decided, okay, enough's enough, needed like get out of this and divorce and stuff like that. So, yeah. So what I expected, and as we talked about before getting married, there was a mutual respect for one another and our dreams. I think he admired that I was ambitious and adventurous and different from other women or different from other girls, which I, I hate that because women are awesome. Like, you know, we're just, we're all awesome. So what is, how is that a compliment to be different? But I think there was some appeal to me that I was less attainable to him or to other people. And there was a chase and a pursuit of me. And that was really, felt really great at the time, being 20 years old and being told by someone that they know they're supposed to be with you, that God told them that they're supposed to be with you mm-hmm. um, and that they want to be with you because of X, Y, and Z. It feels really right. It felt really right for me going into the marriage. Um, it became a really emotionally abusive situation. Uh, there was, the chase was over, right? He had already achieved me. Mm-hmm. And then it became a battle. It became a battle of, you know, before it was having me by his side was something he wanted to achieve, I think, to help, I don't know, affirm something in himself. And then once he had like a me, trophy or an award, be like, yay. Yeah, or something validating. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then and then once we we're in the relationship, I became a threat. I was, you know, working to getting this law degree and building my life outside of the marriage and outside of him and hopefully outside of the church. And that all became a threat. And so then his mission really became to tear me down. And I became a shell of myself. Like I remember you know, even being able to look back and my parents saying this to me that they didn't even recognize who I was. They raised me to be strong and independent. And instead I became this depressed, helpless, codependent, broken shell of a person that couldn't speak up for herself. So that was the difference between the expectation and reality. And I know that a lot of women and men have experienced that where you can ask all the right questions and, and do our best due diligence at the beginning and then when you're actually in the context of a relationship people have their stuff that comes out and if they don't have the tools to work on it themselves then they will take you down with them if you let them mm-hmm. so that was something i let happen to me it's pretty fucking powerful yeah like that's uh like i mean that's i think that's a lot of people can definitely take a lot away from that on it's very hard you can't do due diligence on someone because everyone has like curtains right yeah. And then there's curtains and curtains and curtains and curtains. And then you finally get into the living room. You're like, wait a minute, there's a fake door. <laughs> yeah. But you can learn about yourself. And you can, and that was what I didn't do. I didn't learn to trust my intuition. I didn't learn to set boundaries. I didn't learn that I deserved to feel really good. Mm-hmm. I thought that if I felt bad about something, that maybe it was my own issue. Maybe I needed to fix it. So I was constantly fixated on what I needed to change about myself to work with the decision I had made or the decision the church had made or the decision he had made or the decision God had made. I was working on changing myself to align with that instead of being like, I deserve 
just you know, walk my own path. Mm-hmm. I deserve to feel good about relationships. And I can look back on the six months leading up to our marriage where I emotionally shut down. I sexually shut down. And at the time, I didn't have the tools or the understanding to know what was going on. So I blamed myself. But now I can look back and see that was my intuition saying something's not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I can tap into that. And I would love to you know, have all women have access to the power of their intuition because we actually we can't always do due diligence on other people. And they can put up a really good show. But our intuition is really, really smart, mm-hmm. really freaking powerful. We can see through a lot more than we give ourselves credit for but we just don't always acknowledge it until it's a little too late. I like, I like that because it always starts within, like within yourself. Mm. Like, like uh, it's so many, like we see this all around the world though, is people who allow, you look at certain people in different like toxic relationships or relationships where they keep on going back to the same person, even though that person's mm. cheated on them with like their best friend 17 times. And like they always end up back in the same spot. And you're like, you don't love yourself enough to really be like, one, I know what I want. And two, also fuck you. Like, you know, and so, you know, obviously that's when you got to the, I love myself and also fuck you point. Mm-hmm. Um, like how did that transition then into your divorce and then moving on and yeah. out of law from there? So it's a little bit of a dark story, but I mean, I hope that it connects with somebody, but I had just gotten to a point where I really was unrecognizable as myself. And I was thinking of any way I could end the marriage or get out of the marriage that didn't involve leaving the marriage because that was forbidden by the church. So, you know, part of me was like contemplating, could I manufacture an affair? Not that I was interested in one, but just wanting to do something to blow up the marriage or I was really depressed and I was struggling with suicidal thoughts. So that was going on for several months. And thankfully I had a girlfriend. I remember walking to my law firm to work one morning and I called her and I just told her like, this is what's going on. And she said, you know, Alexandra, you can always wait. Leaving is going to be a much easier, like explaining a divorce to a new partner is going to be a lot easier than explaining a divorce because you had an affair. And that sounds so obvious, but when you're in, a depressive state like logic doesn't really exist in that sense and to have one person actually my she was my maid of honor to have one person just tell me you have permission to leave and i'm going to be by your side no matter what something just clicked and i went to the office that day and i did work and i had a couple glasses of wine after the office and i went home and in like five seconds of courage i said i'm moving out and i packed and i left if i had overthought it i might have stayed but i knew i just needed to get out my life was it's such a, you know, a turning point. What's her name? Brittany. Brittany. Yeah. Shout out to Brittany. To Brittany. I would like to pour some on the carpet, but um, it might ruin my I think Brittany loves Let's tequila. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, Brittany. That's something I just hope for. <laughs> oh, my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when Ricky just like makes guest appearances. <laughs> He did this Wait, two... I'm here. <laughs> he did this two episodes ago where he just started talking. <laughs> And then we have like a fourth camera. Yeah. <laughs> we should actually do that. We should just make a fourth camera just for just Every for once Ricky. in a while, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cameo, we just pop yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, the cameo. Yeah. yeah. The cameo. I'm giving a feel like, whoa. That's mind blowing. Cheers to Brittany and Cheers Ricky. Cheers to Brittany and Ricky. <laughs> yeah. So you then that happened, you moved out. 
And so you moved out and at the same time, were you thinking, okay, now I'm going to quit law. I want to do something else. No. No? And I think like I could tell my story, like the elevator pitch of it. And it feels like this beautiful sequential sequence of like positive up climb events, like a positive upward trajectory. And that's not life. I moved out. I was more depressed than ever. I was actually, you know, the things I feared the most getting kicked out of my church happened. I was kicked out of the church. I was really depressed for that year, and but I finished law school. That was my last year of law school. So I managed to scrape through and graduate. I graduated with honors by the grace of God. Nice. <laughs> Not that that's particularly useful these days. But um, yeah, and then I got to the end of law school. And after you graduate law school in the States, you go on a bar trip. You spend, you graduate law school and your gift is that you spend all summer long studying for the bar exam, mm-hmm. which is like a two or three day exam. So I spent all summer studying right after my divorce was finalized, took the bar exam. And then what everybody does after that is they go on a bar trip. So they just escape somewhere for a month or so and go on their one last vacation before they kind of <laughs> get into the, get into the yeah. yeah. And I didn't really have any friends. I wasn't, I didn't really have permission to make friends in law school while I was there because of the relationship that I was in. And so my last year of law school, I was trying to make friends, but also really struggling with depression and by the end of law school, everybody had, you know, paired off or grouped off to go on their bar trips to Croatia or Italy or Mexico mm-hmm. or something like that. And I didn't have anyone to go with. <clears throat> and I decided to go hike in Nepal for two weeks. Um, There's a couple other things I did. I went to Zambia for a bit and worked in an orphanage. And then I did this trek in Nepal and the Himalayas and the Annapurna circuit, which I've written about and shared about a lot. It was hugely impactful for me. And then spent a month in Thailand working with women who are getting out of the sex trade and then eventually came back. And within like a couple days of that was in that office at the law firm. And I worked there for a year and a half before I realized I couldn't do it anymore. So it was a it was a long season of actually figuring out what I wanted to do next and that I deserve to be happy and that my unhappiness was enough for me to scrap everything and try it again. It wasn't overnight. That's a, that's a crazy story. Everyone's probably out in the Caribbean smashing shots, having margaritas, and you're there hiking Nepal. Yeah. Like, what was like? What was Nepal like? What was what was kind of like the best thing about Nepal? Because, I mean, hiking in Nepal, I think I've seen your photos, but there's a lot of shit that goes up in Nepal. Like, yeah, it's not an easy trek, right? No, it wasn't. And I went during monsoon season because it was the timing, but most people don't go during monsoon season because there's landslides and there's like leeches and fun rain <laughs> yeah so i encountered all of that um but also the beauty of going to the himalayas in monsoon season is that though there's nobody out there so i would go days without seeing anybody else on the trail there was maybe of the whole trip i was hiking for maybe 10 days and i think i met four people along the way aside from the you know beautiful Nepalese people that I would meet along, you know, as I was walking through the villages, but it was incredible. It was so beautiful. It was so much harder than I'm sure I can remember. I remember I did keep a journal and it was so challenging. I was not into fitness at the time. I was not in shape. I didn't even have a map. It had like brand new hiking boots, which I thought were really cute and destroyed me like blisters the size of golf balls under my feet. Um, it was so painful so challenging and I had to go through this process of waking up every day and I'm covered in like blisters and bandages and bruises 
and my ankle swollen because I rolled it and I think I got a cold or something and I would wake up and what I wanted to do was cry and quit and have someone help me but I was alone I didn't have a guide or a porter so I didn't have anyone to give a shit if I was having a bad day mm -hmm. or I needed help and when you're on a mountain you can't really quit you have to go somewhere Either you go up or you go down, but you have to go somewhere. You can't just like, I mean, I guess I could have just thrown my poles on the ground and moved into the mountains, but eventually you have to walk. So I guess I just decided to keep walking. And I remember waking up every day and looking at the destination I had to go to and looking at my map that said it was like six hours and I'd have to walk, you know, 500 meters elevation and 20 kilometers or whatever. And I was like, it's impossible. I can't even walk three steps to my front door of this little hut. And so I'd put on the shoes and I'd get out of bed and I'd wince and complain inside my head. And then I'd take a couple steps and I'd catch my breath. And then I'd take a couple more steps and I'd catch my breath. And I'd just do this until you get over yourself. And somehow I managed to walk 20 kilometers. And it's like the impact of that embodied experience of the things I swore were impossible for me when I didn't have a way out, when I was forced to just get over myself and buckle up and do it. I can do so much more than I think is possible for me. When I don't have a safety net or I don't have some out, I can accomplish incredible things. And I just realize the power I have on my own two feet and also how much I love trekking and the outdoors. And that was that experience that I'll carry with me forever. It was also an experience of really remembering how much I love travel and adventure and then in paradox, being in the glass box of my law firm like a week later. <clears throat> in the downtown DC and it just hitting me that I was not in the right place. So like that's cause that's pretty hectic on like so much pain and everything, you know, that you're going through walking three steps and then having to get out of your head to be able to walk. What was the actual motivation for you to actually go walk 20 kilometers when you've got blisters is like you're in pain. Well, what other choice do you have? What are you going to do? We're all motivated when there's no other options. We just, we really dampen our motivation when we think that there's all these other options for us. There's someone else that can help us out. Like we know so many stories, especially being in Bali, we know so many stories of people that couldn't quite get their business together until they were in the last pennies of their bank account. Motivation isn't really a great thing to rely on because as long as we have outs, then it dampens our motivation. When you don't have any other options, you are fucking motivated. You don't, you don't have a choice. You don't have time to entertain all the alternatives of what you can do. You just make a decision and you do it and you realize it's not that bad. I mean, the pain isn't that bad. It's blisters, swollen ankle, you're fine. Mm -hmm. But our motivation, we manufacture that and we really, really cloud it. I think oftentimes when we have too many outs and we have too many safety nets, we don't have a fire under our asses to get shit done. We've seen that with people here too. Mm -hmm. I know I've experienced that where like, I just couldn't get it together. I just couldn't market my business. I just couldn't launch the course. I just couldn't do that until I was really at my last weeks. So if someone has got shit going, right? They're, they're good. They're like, and do you mean like, like motivation isn't really key, right? You have that last step and yeah. you know, whatever. And then so that can propel someone into the next journey really then take off, right? What's, what's the elevator pitch for someone who's got their shit together, they've got their business, it's, it's growing, it's doing their thing, but like 
is it more so okay they're already in the mindset or how would you describe the difference between someone who's waited for the last minute to finally get the kick to then okay now i'm gonna get shit done is that just because they haven't got the shit done the right way and it's like fear kicking in opposed to someone who's got their shit going on, the business growing, it's just a different in parallel mindset or is there someone with a business that can still adapt that kind of mindset? Like how do you put yourself? Sure, I think that the experience I had with getting to kind of rock bottom before you can make the change is not something we want to rely on. We don't want to always have to get to our most miserable place to get the motivation to make change. Uh, but what we do need is to believe that we're capable of doing what we want to do and to believe that we're worthy of doing what we want to do. I think those are two different things that we need in order to make movement in the directions that we want to go and fulfill our potential in life. If you don't have those things, you might end up finding yourself at a rock bottom in order to prove what you're made of. A divorce, a horrible you know, accident, a, a you know, on the mountain, screaming and crying, altitude mm -hmm. sickness. You might find yourself in the throes of things because you have not yet shown yourself what you're made of and the universe will conspire to create an environment that you have no other choice but to see what you're made of. And in those moments, of course, you have the option to step up and to embrace that and to prove what you're made of. You have the option to do something completely different and be the victim or give in or sink back or shrink back. And I did that for a while also. The mountain is a really good embodied experience because I literally didn't have an option. I was on the mountain. There was nowhere to go. I just had to go on my feet. Yes. But we don't want to rely on that. Like I don't want to ever have to get to rock bottom in order to realize what I'm made of. But hopefully those experiences that we have, if we have to, if the universe forces us to get to that reckoning point, we have that evidence for the next time. We can remember. Hopefully that's a change where we realize I can do more than I think I'm capable of. I am way more strong than I think I am. I can do the things that I think are impossible. And we can reignite that fire in us so that we can just keep moving in the direction of what we want in life without having to, you know, get hit the rock bottom again. That's not a good, you know, standard to have where like you need to be relying on getting to the empty pennies in your bank account before you mm. can, you know, be motivated. So I'm seeing a pattern here that uh, it always, like it's the same thing of what we we're talking about before in your relationship and everything like that. If everyone figures out who they actually are, then that's really the crux and the essence of it. Because if you really know who you are, then you should be able to either see better relationships or see better ways of doing business. And because you're not thinking about external things, it's coming from within. Is that kind of Absolutely. like the role? And like I told you when I was eight years old, I wanted to leave and be in Africa, have adventures. Like, I actually knew who I was when I was eight. I read Glamour magazine and I would always flip through the pages and write, read the articles that they would write about women's empowerment issues or women's rights issues around the world. I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted to do when I was eight before I was told that it wasn't practical or it wasn't make me money or the journalism industry is dead or you're so smart you should be a lawyer instead. Mm -hmm. Before you learn to be afraid of what people think about you or afraid of failure. Like think back to when you were innocent and when that intuition was alive in you because you probably kind of knew more about who you were. And I think the more we can, you know, lean on our self-worth and know that we deserve to be happy and mm -hmm. that anything we want is actually good guidance. You know, our desires and our dreams are good guidance for our purpose in life. 
and we deserve those things, then screw what anybody thinks. Screw what your parents told you you're supposed to do. Screw what's making you, you know, six figures every year and looks impressive on a resume. Like if it's not making you happy, mm-hmm. what's the point? So now let's get into uh, let's get into you know, <laughs> all of that and leaving now because now now you've got the wake up call. Now you realize yeah. that you've done all the hiking as a year and a half later. It's not for you. Then what happened? Yeah, so I worked in the law firm for a year and a half and I would sneak away with my laptop and travel and work from the beach in Mexico or whatever. Um, and I was bored. I was so bored. It wasn't intellectually stimulating to me. I didn't care about what I was working on. I didn't care about the clients. I didn't like you know, the environment I was working in. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so there's probably a part of me looking back that was self-sabotaging because I didn't want to be there, but I couldn't admit that. <clears throat> And I didn't feel like I had the courage to leave on my own because it wasn't that bad. Looking back, I was like depleted of life, joy, and passion. But in the moment, it didn't feel that bad. Like I could work from wherever. I could work from home. I could work from Mexico. Um, I made a ton of money. I had a nice house. It was really impressive what I was doing. I was at a prestigious firm. And so I think I needed something to push me out. And I was subconsciously creating that outcome. So I remember getting to... I finished a trip that I extended and didn't show back up to work for another week and showed back. Ah, I was in like West coast of America doing a road trip in the desert with a girlfriend. It was great. I remember that. It was a great trip. Totally worth it. And then a blizzard happened and I didn't really work that hard to get back to DC. And when I did get back, I had my annual review and I remember sitting there with my partner at the law firm and he just looks at me as I like stumbled in late and he was like, just doesn't seem like you want to be here, Alexandra. And I think I knew in that moment, like, I think I'm supposed to be advocating for myself right now. I'm supposed to be advocating for my job or saying, I do want to be here and here's what I'll do to show my commitment. But I just was silent and I just stared at him and we just had this stare off and he was like, it just doesn't seem like a good fit. And I just stared at him and he was like, okay, I think like we'll give you a few months to find a different place and, you know help write you recommendations or something but it just doesn't seem like a fit and so I left the office that day and I went on the subway and I went home and I remember having a couple tears roll down my face and I went to my friend's house off the subway and as soon as by the time I got there I felt so much relief I was sad and I felt humiliated and kind of like well what the fuck now but I was relieved I wanted that to happen and I didn't think that I was capable of doing it myself and it was done for me. And I didn't really know what to do next. But at that point, I had already come to Bali. But a few months prior, some email came in my inbox that was like, we're hosting a women's retreat for bloggers and women who want to leave corporate and go solo. I don't even know how this email ended up in my <laughs> inbox. Um, if like, that's not a call, The universe like placed me on someone's newsletter. I never signed up for it. And I just enrolled in the program and I came to Bali for a week. And it was amazing. And I was just like, man, this place was like, oh. so when was this? This was November of 2017. Mm-hmm. And so then it was December. I came back and I was already kind of like, it was the first time I saw people working online, mind you. This is not a thing I was exposed to in DC. I didn't know, you know, there was nothing, Instagram wasn't that big then or like the influencer thing. Corporate and in offices. And yeah, lawyers and, and politicians and NGOs. I didn't know people that were making money online or had built businesses on their own or living abroad. And the first time I came to Bali was the first time I saw that it was possible. And I think I just knew like, it's now or never. 
if I don't if I don't leave now, I'll just get sucked into this world, the golden handcuffs we called it in law school. But I think I was just like, if someone else could do it, then why couldn't I figure it out? And then went back to DC, had my meeting with the with the partner, left, went back to Bali a couple months later. And when it was here then, I just was like, I'm not gonna apply for any other jobs. I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't enjoy this. I don't know what I want to do next, but I know I don't want to do that. And I'm 24 years old and I'm going to come to Bali and try to figure it out. <laughs> I think I knew I was young enough to sort of, <laughs> I mean, everybody's young enough to try again forever and ever. I will insist on that. But at the time it was, I, I think I had a good perspective on like, I have time to figure it out. So you were 25 at that point? Yes, I think so. 25, 26. So the thing I like about uh, the next thing we're going to be talking about is what you're doing now because you do travel around a lot, mm -hmm. which is really cool, but also the business that you've, you've built. Now, everyone who knows me knows that I dislike the life coaching community because everyone, 99% of them, have never actually been in a high-paying job or a business scenario before and never built their business and... They've just bought a course so that they can go sell a course and build their own course to go sell a course to someone else who wants to buy that course, right? That's just like You're different. When we first met, uh, you told me what you did and I asked you what your background was and I was very impressed and I was like, you're the real deal. So coming into and seeing all of that, how, do you, how did you get into what you're doing now? Like, Because there's a lot of like online, you know, businesses and digital nomads and stuff like that but when you made the decision to come to bali what, where did you sort of find your niche and like what did you want to do and go hey i can make this into a business yeah so my niche was i knew i wanted to travel i didn't know how to use a camera like i'd never used a proper camera before but i bought one before i came to bali and i had to keep running out with my visa so i was traveling a lot from bali and <clears throat> i didn't know anybody i didn't really have friends at the time and so I kind of got to a point realizing again, like if I want to travel somewhere, I'm going to have to go alone. And I'd gotten used to that since I was young and knew that if I wanted to go somewhere, I'd probably just have to go alone. So I was traveling solo and going to more adventurous places, I would say, than people are used to seeing on social media or seeing women go solo. And I love that. Like I loved going trekking in Myanmar by myself or um, yeah, just having different kinds of adventures. And I think that was really unique at the time. Now, obviously there's tons of travel creators on social media, so it's harder to grow. But at the time, I think that was quite unique. My account grew a lot. I was meeting a lot of other creatives here and also had done a couple of trips with them. So that kind of collaboration also blew my Instagram up. So what we, well, so yes, in the beginning, yeah. Okay, Instagram wasn't the way it is, but like what were you posting? What was the type of creativity that you were doing that was gaining this traction and, and your brand was growing? I would say it was aesthetic photos. So like really not, um, not like a GoPro or a selfie kind of photo, which also is fine, but- oh, Proper high end, yeah. Yeah, nicer photos. Um, in of yourself? Or of myself. How do you do that if you're- Tripod. Self? You just, you just get over yourself and you set up the tripod and you freaking do it and it's great. And I loved it. I thought it was super fun. If you're in the middle of nowhere, no one cares. No one's watching you. But so I would share these photos of me in destinations around the world that people weren't used to seeing and definitely weren't used to seeing women in, especially solo. 
Um, and I think that was, that was the niche. Okay. That was what was catching on to people. And from the beginning, I was sharing about travel, but I always shared about travel through the lens of personal development. Like travel not being a means to an end, but travel as a means to grow yourself and challenge yourself and expand yourself and learn about yourself and connect with other people and face challenges. So I think those stories always resonated with people. Mm -hmm. So how did you how did you send that message out? Was it just Instagram and then your captions? Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, back then I don't think we had stories, right? Right, but I was more active on my blog. So, I had so where'd you write that? On my blog, on my website, The Way Ferris. So you, so you started a website. Mm -hmm. So that was, I mean, medium.com would have come around roughly around then as well, but you started on your website. So it was basically, you would, what, so you, so run me through. So you would post on Instagram because I'm trying to give a, a little bit of um, background for people who understand what it used to be like compared to what it mm -hmm. is now, or a little bit of context. So back then you had your website, had your travel website and then your Instagram, upload, branding, social followers going, and then you redirect everyone back. And then plus on top of that, you basically SEO. And then is that kind of how your blog grew as well? Or is it yeah, I never knew anything about SEO and I just didn't care. Okay. It was just a way for me to share stories and travel, you know, blogs and advice and guides and things like that. Um, so it was just another outlet for my writing more so. And yeah, it was a way to give people additional information. Mm -hmm. But otherwise it was sharing a photo because they didn't even have carousels back then. So a photo to Instagram and a caption. And that's it. That was it. So what so what do you see what what do you sort of see now how technology has changed at different platforms? It's do you think it's do you think someone can still create a good brand like on how Instagram is now, even though it's a scale and you know, there's everyone doing something? Yeah, I mean, anyone can do whatever they want. And for me, I've realized, especially since the pandemic hit and I had to totally reshift my business and my focus, things changed for me. Like I, my account stopped growing in the way that it used to and the engagement diminished a lot because I stopped traveling. So it was even just like a couple months that, you know, was halved or quartered. But well, I spent a couple of years trying to keep up with the changing trends on Instagram. I don't know if you know, but you probably do. Being in Indonesia, we get like the last of the last. So it took us like two years before we even got music or reels and everybody else did. So I already felt like I was so behind in the game that when we finally got reels and music, I was like, I need to make reels. I need to make music. I need to make them in this style. And they need to be like this, that or the other thing because that's what's trending right now. And I tried that for so long and I hated it. And I got so disconnected from my brand. I got so disconnected from my business or what I was doing or creative and it also wasn't helping me grow or bringing any clients in. And so when borders opened after COVID and I started getting back into travel, really it was like a boat, you know, two week live aboard diving experience in Raja Ampat with friends. And I just rekindled my love for the crafts and the creative aspects of things. And for me, when I got re in touch with what I actually love to do, aside from what the algorithm was telling me I should do or the trends were saying I should do, or all the like coaches online were like, this is what you need to get engagement. This is how I grew this. And this is how I grew that. I was like, screw it. I just want to do what I enjoy. That's what got me here in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I stopped doing all the things I was supposed to do. And I went back to posting photos and writing long captions. And that has 
been able to sustain my business because I love it still. And people can sense that I love it and they can sense it's real and authentic. And that's actually brought me more work than anything is just returning to the craft that I love that connects with me and expressing myself in a way that's authentic to me instead of trying to follow the trends. And I know that's not what everybody would say. They'd say like, this is a trending song and post things that are you know six seconds long and made on your iPhone and all these things. Do whatever you want. Whatever is going to light you up, that's what's going to resonate with people on the other side of things. Mm-hmm. They're seeing enough of oversaturated content. And you know, the numbers don't really matter. What matters is that your message or your, you know, creativity or what, you know, you produce resonates with a, a client or a brand. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need. So you're making a ton of money in law. Now you've changed, you've done a 180 and you flipped it on its head. Uh, you're building this brand. How do you make money? Mm. The first job I ever got paid for was, I think I got an airline alliance in Asia to reach out to me and ask for me to talk about them in a blog post. And it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. I think I'd been doing it for a year at that point. And it was the first time, maybe a year and a half, actually. I didn't have any business expertise or acumen. I was a lawyer, but like I didn't really know how to set prices and pitch myself and market things. And yeah, I remember being, I think it was like $500 or something. I think it was $500. And it was just like, I can create something out of nothing that people see monetary value in. And yeah, that it just sort of took off from there. And I just continued to travel. The more I traveled, the more my account grew, the more I would get clients reaching out to me from airlines or tourism boards or hotels or other brands to do really cool campaigns for them, creative campaigns and share through mm-hmm. my lens and my account. And that all took off by, you know, 2019 um, and the start of 2020. And that was really exciting for me. It was like everything I worked for paid off and 2020 came around. And I was like, I have contracts lined up for the whole year. Really cool press trips lined up. Yeah, it was like, finally, I'm coasting. How good. Yeah. How good. Thanks, man. Uh, they always let me know like what the, yeah. what the hours are. Uh, so... Okay, cool. So now you're making money. It's sick. You, yeah. You've done it. You're like, hey, this is, I'm on, I'm like, I'm the real deal now. It's growing. Yeah. Uh, but I know that you also have, uh, and I, I mentioned this before about like when I met you and like I knew that you were doing courses and stuff. What are these in co- these courses about? Because I know they're very important to you because you're very much about empowering women, yeah. especially with your story, right? So, so tell me about that. Yeah. So obviously 2020 hit and it wasn't coasting, like travel stopped. And mm-hmm. so then I my business, like every one of those contracts went under in like 48 hours. It's mm-hmm. like email after email. And so I had to shift. And through that time during COVID, I stayed in Bali and went through a really trying personal self-discovery experience, like being in a relationship that was really toxic again and being like, how am I repeating this? How am I still, you know, unhappy in relationships? Like what is going on here? I tried to start a sustainable clothing business and it never really took off and I didn't really like it. And through that process, I just committed to really investigating myself openly. And I actually worked with a coach here and it was so eye-opening to me and really helped me see clearly patterns that had been holding me down for so, so long. And once I could see them and once I had a safe space to explore that, I, I really did feel free from them and got clear on what I wanted to do. And I was like, I've always wanted to work with women. I've always wanted to empower women. I just haven't felt 
worthy enough to do that one-to-one or with a group of women and actually speak to them and support them. And once those fears and those insecurities, I could, you know, work through them, then I was clear that I really want to be able to connect with women personally. So during COVID, I launched a a 12-week group coaching program that was, you know, based on the things, my life experience as well, and things that I've learned through, you know, psychology and uh, my research and working with other professionals and experts and and just being genuine about my experience. Like I, I understand the concerns we have with lots of life coaches, but we all have impact. We all have the ability to impact other people and we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be the best at anything. We have to be open-minded and open enough to let people in. And we have to be a few steps ahead that we can really help support and pave the way for some people. And for me, I was really honest about that. I shared about my experience. I had a lot of women that have been following me for years. So they followed me through my divorce. They followed me to moving to Bali. They followed me through breakups. And I shared openly about it, how I was growing and learning. And so I built a course um, that just sort of walked people through that process if they were going through a transition as well. And that was the Empowerment Academy. And I really loved doing that and um, loved connecting with the women who joined that program. And then in the last year, I've been focusing more on one-to-one coaching, which I also find really, really rewarding. You can dig a lot deeper with people in those spaces um, while also... Still only women? Right now, women, yeah. I would be open to working with men, um, but I do know my like language is typically catered to women. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I, I know how, how difficult it could be with men because I know that you went through some shit with uh, a, a stalker. Mm. So, I mean, I want to dive into that because, I mean, you've had a crazy, like crazy kind of life, like that's where it kind of gone up and, you know, down and you've learned a lot. And then there's just so many things that have happened to where you are now. But I do want to ask about everything that did happen. And this happened, I think, in the last 12 months, last 18 mm. months. You had a stalker who came through, which basically followed you around the world, was saying some fucking crazy shit. Uh, tell us about yeah. that story because I think that's important on uh, you're focusing on women and that's the reason why I asked, you know, is this also just women because this story actually cra- is crazy and I want everyone to know Yeah, about it. I love men, okay? I have nothing against men. And I, I actually worked, you know, <laughs> because I worked through some things to get through some like man-hating seasons I was in and realized we're actually all responsible for our happiness and we're also all equipped to be empowered in our own choices and to also, you know, remove people from our lives when they're not doing us any good. Mm-hmm. That being said, yes, I had the experience with a stalker. I it was about a year ago I started getting messages from this person on Instagram and they're weird and creepy as happens. You know, I'm used to that, blocked him and then um I started getting emails from him. And I do have my work email connected to my Instagram and that's fine. That's how people send me information and and reach out about pitches and things um but he started emailing me there and i blocked it but on google you actually can't block emails you can only send them to your spam you can block it but then it just goes to your spam so i would still have to go into my spam and and delete them manually and i would read through some of them and they were really disturbing really um i mean i have a psychology background so for me it was like this person clearly is struggling with either like what Explain to me disturbing. What does that mean? Well, like mm. what's some of the stuff? Well, either completely nonsensical, like nonlinear thoughts. So that made me think either schizophrenia or manic depression. Um, but 
But what, but what, it, what does that mean? Like, right. So I couldn't, me, I couldn't repeat the nonlinear thoughts because it's like a not, it's like a jumbled sentence, like no, no linear pattern what, in a sentence. An, what's an example though? Like, of can you try and paraphrase something? On I couldn't paraphrase those, but, um, but the ones that were particularly concerning instead of just weird were the threats. So he would be threatening to come and find me, threatening to kidnap me. Um, he clearly, even though I'd never spoken to him, he clearly believed I was in love with him and we were in a relationship and, um, I was the only person for him and he was the only person for me. And even though I blocked him on everything and never spoken to him, he believed that every, you know, post that I shared on a caption on Instagram or every story was actually a secret coded message to him. It even got so bad that my best friend, like he would watch her stories and think that the songs that she put on her stories were secret coded messages to him. And we laugh, it's funny, but it's it's really sad and it's really disturbing. And it, it, you know, since then I've learned there's a, a mental illness called erotomania, which is like this, like people can become fixated on maybe a public figure or celebrity or something like that. What's, what's it called? Ero erotomania. Erotomania, okay. And it is a like a delusional belief that this person who you've never met and they've never met you, you are in a relationship with them and you can believe, you know, that anything that they share is a secret message to you about their love for you. And that's obviously really disturbing, but then it became aggressive and violent. And then he began threatening to kidnap me, um, put me in a suitcase, a lot of... See, that shit was fucked up. It was all fucked up. Because fucked up. I remember you, like we went out for dinner that night and we went to Skull and we went for like a, you know, a couple of drinks and dinner. And I remember you telling me about this and, and then I was like, oh, I'll be fine. Just, just let me know. Like we'll, we'll get him like locked up or whatever. And then, um, but then like, and then we didn't see each other for a while and then it popped up and I was like, oh shit. Like this yeah. is like, this is escalated. And then I would go onto his story and I'd, I'd find him and then delusional. Um, what's it called again? Uh, erotomania. Erotomania where he was he was going, I can't believe she's... I should try and do his accent. I can't believe she's doing... Oh, no, I can't. I'm just terrible. That was terrible. That was terrible. What was that? I don't know. I, that was just your accent. That was like, my accent. Horrible. With, like, with like the word T in it. <laughs> that was terrible. I'm never doing that again. Um but when he was talking, he was describing about, I can't believe she's acting like this. Uh, we've had well, we've had many conversations together. She asked me to come over and all yeah. this type of shit. Because he believed that, you know, random things about like, wow, it's a I would post a story and say, it's a beautiful sunset in Bali tonight. He would believe that that was me saying, I want mm. you to be here to watch the sunset with me. And the way I kind of was able to see his thought patterns is he would send these to me in emails for months. So I, you know, I would get sometimes a hundred a week from him and I'd delete them and never respond, but there wasn't anything else I could really do. And yeah, I was able to kind of see the inner workings of what was going on in his mind and never really thought it would escalate to the point where he quit his job in London and did what he said he was going to do, which was to come here, find me, shove me in a suitcase, kidnap me. Uh. A lot of really explicit horrific sexual things um and he actually did he came here and he tried to find me and he would send me photos of him like on my street and trying to find me um yeah and it's wild because i have his stories that you were able to see to validate that i wasn't bullshitting i wasn't making things up mm -hmm. i have his emails i have a log of 
30 video messages he sent me of himself talking to a video, sending them to me about what he was going to do to me. But on, on top of that, before this actually blew up, when we had dinner, we're having a drink, you actually told me about this guy before he even came over. So yeah. I, before everyone on the internet like knew and saw all your videos and everything that how went like crazy viral, I already knew about that a couple of months before. And I asked, I said to you, I remember this, I said to you, I was like, he's not going to come over. He's not going to come over. Yeah. I fucking ate my words. And it's, it's the sad truth. Like I had, I had and have all the evidence in the world. I have a log of hundreds of emails from him threatening to kidnap me, threatening to sexually assault me. I have videos of him saying the same thing. I have photos of him in my like neighborhood saying he's trying to find me and he's what he's going to do to me. I have all the evidence on, in the world of this, and yet he's still a free man. And I still had my friends questioning whether I was overreacting, and I had the internet questioning if I was overreacting. And I'm lucky because he was sharing all this to his social media. So it was really easy for me to just be like, go see for yourself. And he was admitting to everything on his own social media. He was going on his stories and admitting to everything because he was so mentally ill that he didn't really grasp the significant, like, I don't know. But that should have all been working in my favor. Think about how hard this is for women who don't have their stalker sending them hundreds of emails explicitly saying the, th the crimes they're going to commit against them yeah. or the videos they're posting to their own social media. A lot of women struggle with this, you know, struggle. They're victimized by this bullshit and their stalkers are really, you know, suave and they're very charismatic and they're really well liked in the community and they're doing horrible things behind the scenes. But to everybody else, like, you know, John would never do that. Mm. Kevin's so successful. He's leading this business. There's no way he would do that. I had everything working in my favor to make this a clean cut case. And yet still here I am seven months later after reporting it to the police and nothing has happened. Crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard because during that process, people, of course, they blame the victim. Well, you shouldn't have done that. or You should have done this differently. You shouldn't have been posting on social media. Well, you know, newsflash, most stalkers don't find their victims on social media. Um, or you should have, you know, clearly you're not telling the truth or else clearly police would intervene. Mm -hmm. If this had happened in the UK, this would never go down this way. If this happened in the US, the police would have definitely intervened. It's not the truth. And actually, like, through that process, I think I probably got a thousand messages from women around the world who share their own stories saying that they've gone through or are going through the same thing. They're terrified for their lives. They have as much evidence as they can have, and the police won't do anything about them. They're told to, you know, lock their doors extra at night or never go out at night by themselves or move or quit their job and leave and change their identity. Uh -huh. This is put on women. And it's so unjust. You know, stalking is a crime. It's not that we're waiting for a crime to be committed. It's not even preventative. Stalking is a crime. It's a crime in Indonesia. It's a crime in the UK. It's a crime in America. Cyber stalking and harassment like this is a crime punishable by time in jail. And we're just not taking women seriously. And I know you love me and we have a great relationship. Mm -hmm. And even when I told you, you were kind of like, but I know. could it be that serious? That's too far-fetched. Yeah. Surely you're being a bit dramatic. And like, I pull my hand up. I yeah. honestly... I honestly thought you were overreacting and I was 100% yeah. wrong. Uh, yeah. I admit that because we never know when someone is in that stability mentally, you just don't fucking know. Like, 
Yeah, exactly. Because everyone talks shit on socials, right? Everyone sends a DM. Like, I know a lot of my other like girlfriends who are big on influencers. They show me their fucking like message request. Oh my god, there's so many dick pics. Yeah, no so one wants that ever. No girl wants that. Do you know what platform Period. has the most dick pics out of all my friends? Fucking Twitter. Do you know how many dick pics my friends who are on Twitter get? Dude, it's insane. Like, uh, it's crazy, bro. No one wants that. Yeah, no. Even no, Rick- I promise you, I, I have a lot of girlfriends. I've had girlfriends my whole life and not once has anyone been like, guess what? Something great just happened today. This guy, I think I might be interested in, he just sent me a photo of his freaking genitalia. It's a good looking dick. It's so good. No one wants that, okay? Dude, Here. you only, only send a dick pic when it's warranted when someone asks. Okay, if someone asks, then great. Which means it's warranted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someone asks. Otherwise, no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's it's extreme. It's really scary. And what actually ends up happening in so many situations is that we don't take it seriously. Maybe we laughed about it and we underplay it until something really terrible and tragic happens. Mm-hmm. And then it's easy to look back and be like, oh, Maybe we should have taken her seriously. She had that stalker for a few years. Her tires were slashed every month. Mm-hmm. Um, she complained to the police and they just didn't do anything or they dragged their feet or they told her she was overreacting yeah. or she shouldn't dress like that or maybe she shouldn't post her photos on social media. It's all bullshit. It needs to change. And it's not dependent on country. Like I've been dealing with this in America, UK and Indonesia and it's all the same game. Same shit. Yeah. It's fucking frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah. But I'm glad that you're safe. I'm glad that nothing's happened and, and you're still here, bright and wonderful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just am trying to do my duty to help it be something that's positive and impactful for people rather than just this garbage incident I had to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it did go viral was helpful, I guess, for that. I thought it would be helpful for getting police involvement, and it wasn't really. But I hope that it really helped a lot of women know that they're not alone and also raise awareness to that this stuff happens Mm -hmm. all the fucking time and rarely is anything done about it and if that's if that's all i can accomplish with it then okay but i'm also hoping i'm still dealing with police working with um you know even parliament in the uk to try to get this moving uh, and hopefully there will be a resolution because so if anyone watching this and is in the parliament uh, raise, raise, raise this can't they raise this case? Come on, guys. Yeah, it was not okay. Things really need to change. Just make a powerful thing. Yeah, and the only reason that he ever left Bali and I was able to come home because I went into hiding in Laos. I went off to a little village in Laos and hid there for a month and spent all day emailing police and press and things like that. The only reason he ended up leaving is because word got around in our community here in Bali, even in the Gili Islands nearby. So he was trying to kind of run away and people were kicking him out of bars, kicking him out of restaurants, kicking him out of guest houses. That was the only reason eventually he got spooked and he went back to the UK where he was then arrested. Mm. But it wasn't the authorities. It wasn't anyone with a position of power to do anything. It was community coming together and saying, we're not okay with this. But if that hadn't happened, I might not be able to come back to Bali. Mm-hmm. It's good that we have a good community. It's yeah. so good. Value of community when people step up and like, that's one thing yeah, about yeah. Bali does have um, is when she like you know when someone has an accident and like everyone gets around and mm-hmm. like there's always like everyone gets involved too which is cool so it's true so I mean I think I want to ask like let's um we're coming to the end of this 
uh, this episode, which has been fucking fantastic because, like, learning more. You're getting a women's it. empowerment tequila show. Did Let's you know go. It? <laughs> like, Sign up to my course where I'm going to teach <laughs> you how you can build your own course so that you can sell this course to other people. But mostly them. we're just going to drink tequila <laughs> the whole time. You get a free bottle of tequila <laughs> with every course. Uh, I kind of want to just, yeah, kind of end towards this episode of, okay, I think the, the message, like, through this whole episode um, through everything that you've done is the main thing is important is to figure out who you are and and know what's important to you who you are as yourself so how did you knowing yourself and and you being able to be a very strong foundational person for yourself be able to deal with all that shit that just went mm-hmm. through like how how did you mentally and physically emotionally get through that yeah I think I was I was just talking to a friend about that, about how different this experience had been if it had happened two or three years ago. Um, I think the difference was I knew my strength and I knew that I got to choose how my story would be written. I know it was also a lot easier to deal with the people, like the backlash on the internet of people that say really garbage things when I came forward about what was going on. Uh, but I think I just, I was so clear on my values. I was so clear in the fact that I didn't need to handle everything perfectly in order to still be, you know, aligned with my integrity and my values. And so I could affirm myself every day that I was doing the best I could to navigate the situation. And I also felt empowered in being really freaking creative in the midst of what felt like an absolute living nightmare on how I was going to write this story. Like it could have been something that I, and if it had happened a couple of years prior, it might have been something I chose to just wallow in and play the victim and feel sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, understandable. But I'm so glad that I did the work to build the foundations that I did in the years since um, that when this happened, my mindset was constantly on like, how can I use this? How can I use this for me? How can I use this for me? How can I use this for my impact? How can I use this for my story? How can I use this to help? And, you know, I don't want to sound like that's like making me a martyr in any sense, but it's all we have. When, when you can't necessarily control the circumstances around, you can't control what this person is doing, the stalker is doing, the police are doing. You can do your best. You can know that you're acting in your integrity aligned with your values. And then at the end of the day, you get to choose what story is playing out before you. You're the main character. So what is the story that you're going to write? Is it going to be one that makes you into this helpless victim or is it going to be one where you're creatively pulling together the puzzle pieces of this experience to see how it's all going to finally eventually work together for your good, for the good of other people. I know that this helped make an impact in the world. I know it helped other women. I know it's empowered me and how I navigate really challenging situations. For example, I've never had a panic attack before this experience. Now I know what having panic attacks feel like. Now I know what it feels like from my really privileged standpoint to deal with the police who won't listen to you that pales into comparison of what you know women of color or like minorities or in you know poor neighborhoods have to deal with but i can now get a glimpse in to what struggles other people have dealt with that otherwise i wouldn't have access to and um yeah for me that's really powerful i have a tattoo on my ribs on my ribs it says de profundis and it's the title of a letter that Oscar Wilde wrote when he was in prison and he was in prison for being gay. And his story is that he writes this letter to his lover outside of jail. And he's saying, 
how he's actually grateful for the experience because before it, he only gravitated, he uses the Garden of Eden, but he only gravitated toward the sunny parts of the garden and he got to live in the sunshine. And this forced him into the shadows and it made him a much kinder, more forgiving person because he got to see the fullness of humanity and he's actually grateful for it. So, you know, that's sort of my, my emblem I got this long time ago through my divorce, but every one of these experiences is always an opportunity to see how can it make me better, a better version of me? How can it serve my purpose instead of being a disadvantage to me? But we always, we always get to write that story for ourselves. I love every single thing that you just said on that because that's very, very powerful. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've talked about your past, like what's going on now? Like what are you working on now? Wait, like what does the future hold? I know you've got some insane things that you want to tell me. So so what's what's going on? Yeah, I've like rekindled my love of adventure and travel. I just got off a long tour around Egypt and Kenya and Tanzania. And I just hiked Mount Kenya, which was really awesome and reminded me how much I love adventure. Um, Wait, how long? Is, how big is the the hike in Kenya? Uh, well, it depends on what route you take. I took an especially long route because I wanted to go to different spots, like certain lakes and things like that. So I took six days. Uh, I have a bit of information on my stories, and I cannot, or on my Instagram, and I cannot recommend enough following that particular route that I did. Okay. There's routes you can take to get up Mount Kenya a lot faster. I don't know why you would do that. If there's anything I learned from Annapurna, it's like there's no point in rushing up a mountain. Like it's not as enjoyable and then you get sick. Uh, but it's so beautiful and it was such a rewarding experience. And we went up the back way so there weren't as many people on the route that we did. It's called the Chogoria route. And yeah, it's incredible. It was, you know, nobody was out there hiking. I rarely saw anybody and it was a really good experience. Still got the blisters somehow. I haven't yet figured that out. Have you heard of band-aids? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I was like wrapping it with tape and pouring like mouthwash on my blisters to clean them because <laughs> I wasn't prepared. But eventually I'll learn. So now you're moving out of Bali and then you've got a new company that you're working with. Yeah. So that's something I could have never predicted is through my just pouring out into my love of travel. Um, you know, kind of what I was saying, like, do whatever you want. You can find ways to make money that you can't even imagine right now and so sometimes it helps to just start get started because you really can't picture the opportunities that are going to open to you so through like the last several months and actually the last year or so of just following my intuition and going to places that feel exciting to me I've made some really cool connections and you know have some cool projects in the pipelines for travel work and content creation with some travel companies and really cool destinations but I'm also working and supporting a company called Insider Expeditions, which I've partnered with on a few trips in the past. Mm -hmm. And now I am getting the opportunity to plan a few amazing events with them. They plan, or my role with them is to plan and manage and produce really insane travel experiences around the world. It's not like a typical event and it's not a typical tour. It's like if they combined and married and made something that everybody said was impossible and they're like, we're doing that. We're doing that thing. So this sounds kind of like, you know, have you seen Circle on YouTube? Yeah. Well, yeah, where they have the DJs. Yeah. Is that kind of like that, but like so, where everyone can come to? Yeah. So we have some events coming up that do involve amazing DJs and musicians. Like I'll be in Egypt in October hosting Kygo and Tiesto at the pyramids. Wow. It's like insane. Like literally... Kai going to Tiesto, like playing in sand dunes at sunset and playing in front of the Great Pyramid. So that's actually open to the public if anyone wanted to join it. Um, it might have happened by the time this goes live. Yeah. But 
these events happen all the time. We're also the company is hosting Diplo and Antarctica. So really cool events that are open so to what's anybody. The, what, let's talk about this because when this comes out, I think um, the Diplo event will be gone. Yeah. But what's the company so that people can Insider Expeditions. Insider Expeditions. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, you know, some of the work I do is helping plan these events for private events, like a really cool, you know, community that wants to get together and just do out-of-the-box experiences around the world with their community um, and those obviously are, you know, private events, but then we also host these events par partnering with uh -huh. artists. Um, Mike Posner is hosting an event in Iceland next month. Um, so really cool events. And these ones are actually open to anybody that wants to join. And they're insane. Like the, the way I see it, Insider Expeditions doesn't have this as their motto, but I always say in my head, this is their motto is like they make the impossible possible around the world. So it is just really, really cool experiences. If you wanted to plan a trip, they're a great company to work with, like to a group, like community experience. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. Like this is never anything I could have anticipated five years ago or two years ago when I was like, what do I do next? I don't want to be a lawyer. But to see how all of those things have come together and made sense through this opportunity and the other things I'm working on as well, um, it just goes to show that when you... Not to sound cliche, but when you follow your heart and you go with where your intuition is leading you, doors open and cool opportunities come your way. And, you know, our parents' generation was really set on a game plan and a retirement plan and a business plan. And a 30-year mortgage. And a 30-year mortgage. And, you know, I don't know if that's working for that many people. So maybe we try something different. And if your intuition is calling you in a direction... Trust that you can figure it out. Trust that opportunities are going to come your way and you're going to meet people and have conversations that you could never plan for, you can never anticipate. And along the way, you can figure things out. You can figure out how to make money. Um, but it really matters that you're feeling excited about life and you love what you do. I mean, we only have one life, so why not? Why not? Yeah. And why not? We just leave it on that yeah. note because that... What you're doing now sounds extremely exciting yeah. and you're excited. Yeah. So let's leave this episode yeah. with a lot of excitement. I'll be in Africa for the next three months, probably well and done by the time this goes live. <laughs> but I will host group trips next year and in the coming years. I'm super excited about that. Um, so these are going to be like my version of those experiences, but for people that want to travel with me. So I'm really excited about that too. Awesome. Lots of good things on the horizon. Well, let's cheers to that. Yes. Yeah. Cheers to a great episode. Yes. And I want to thank you again, Alex, for coming Thanks, on. Alex. And I think this episode has been fucking phenomenal to learn about your journey as a woman, going through a lot of ups and downs, and then definitely what you're on to now. I think, what did you call it again? The Making the impossible Making possible. the impossible possible. I think that's your life. And I think oh, everyone I thinks about that. I think they can also have an exciting life. Sweet. I'll add that to my... Rib cage with Oscar Wilde, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> underneath Dash, Blake helped me with this quote. Perfect. All right, thank you, Alex. Thanks, Blake. And thank you for watching. Please go and like and subscribe if you love tequila. Go like and subscribe. If you love Alex's journey, go like and subscribe. Go give her a follow. And then what we'll do is see you guys on the next episode where we're going to have another story of tequila and another story of an amazing human special guest. Adiós.